When I'm standing like this and you're sat like that, I feel more like I'm preaching than I'm giving an interactive seminar. Um, but maybe I'll start anyway, well, we'll see, we'll never mind about that. Let me start by saying about something about myself. I'm uh, a Jesuit. Uh, that's a member, that means a member of a religious order called the Society of Jesus, which was founded by this guy, St. Ignatius of Loyola. There he is. In the year 1540. One of the things that Jesuits are famous for, or were once famous for, or infamous for, is, anyone know this? Casuistry. Casuistry has a very, has very negative connotation for some people, but in essence, all it means is case-based reasoning, as opposed to rule-based reasoning. So you look at a situation, that case itself, rather than general rules. Jesuits were famous for what you might call case studies or kind of moral questions and approaching them from this case-based way rather than the usual rule-based way. Now, as it happens, just last night, one of my Jesuit colleagues, as I came back from the conference, passed on to me a kind of moral case study, a moral dilemma, which was actually put in the form of a kind of morality test. And I thought it might help you to understand what makes Jesuits tick if I put this test to you. So would you be, would you be up for that? Okay, let's try this. So here we go. It's a, a testing Moral dilemma. Oh, yeah. This test has only one question, but it's a very important one. By giving an honest answer, you'll discover where you stand morally. The test features an unlikely, completely fictional situation in which you'll have to make a decision. Only you will know the results, so remember that your answer needs to be honest. This is the situation. You're a photojournalist working for a major newspaper. You're in Florida, in Miami to be specific. There's chaos all around you caused by a hurricane with severe flooding. There are houses and people swirling around you, some disappearing under the water. The situation's nearly hopeless. Nature is unleashing all of its destructive fury. This is a flood of biblical proportions and you're caught in the middle of this epic disaster. At the same time, trying to shoot career-making photos. The test. Suddenly you see a man in the water. He's fighting for his life, trying not to be taken down with the debris. You move closer. Somehow the man looks familiar. You suddenly realize who it is. It's Donald. It's Donald Trump. This is a serious thing, right? At the same time you notice that the raging waters about him are about to take him under. So the raging waters are about to take him under forever. I guess you've worked out. <laughs> I guess you've worked out where this is going. I think. So you've got. You've got two options. You can save the life of Donald Trump, or you can shoot a dramatic Pulitzer Prize-winning photo, documenting the death of the, one of the most famous and powerful men in the world. Okay, that's the situation. It's important, right? So the question is here. Okay, now, you please give an honest answer to this question, right? This is it. Would you select high contrast colour film? <laughs> or would you go with the classic simplicity of black and white? <laughs> it's quite, quite a telling test that I think. Most people say black and white every time. 
Now, apart from the casuistry, let me tell you what I do. I'm a Catholic priest, so I preach at Mass every Sunday. That's me in the Sacred Heart Church just up the road, preaching on a Sunday morning. I've been doing that pretty much every week since I was ordained, which was 14 and a half years ago. You probably know that among the different Christian churches, Catholics have tended, in many countries at least, to put less emphasis on preaching than most Protestant or Reformed churches do. The sermon, or the homily as it's usually called in Catholic churches, is comparatively short and not generally regarded as the most important part of the Mass. And most priests, although they spend years studying theology, don't get a lot of training in preaching as such. But I'm also a Jesuit, and one of the things that we've always seen as important, an important part of our mission, is what we call ministry of the word. So in our church, the Sacred Heart, there's a little bit more emphasis on preaching than perhaps the average Catholic parish. There's a Mass every day in the church, and we preach it every Mass. So even at weekday Masses. I did one this morning, 7.45. Though weekday homilies are very short, usually just three or four minutes. And at Sunday Mass, we'd preach for longer, but even then, it's only between seven and ten minutes. The longest homily I can remember giving, there was something very important that had to be said, was 20 minutes. That was a one-off. What I'd like to do today is to hear a bit about your experience of some aspects of speech writing and see how it compares to some aspects of preaching. And the hope is that the two disciplines have got something in common and something to learn from each other. But first I want to ask you about your experience of, of, of preaching. I imagine we've got a mixture of people here, some who perhaps attend church regularly or occasionally or hardly ever or never. So just in terms of your experience of, of preaching, can I ask how many of you would say you've listened to plenty of sermons or plenty of homilies in your time? Quite a few. Okay, quite a few. Right. Has anyone here been involved in writing sermons or homilies? Or, yeah, some people have, yeah, yeah, quite a few. Okay, good. So perhaps then first, just to get it out of the way, we should look at the question of what speech writing and preaching don't have in common. Okay. What's different about preaching? So I'm, I'm guessing some of these because I don't have an awful lot of experience. I have a little bit of experience in speech writing, but not much so. I'm kind of, I don't really know what your lives are like. And I'm, I'm kind of guessing what these points might be. Uh, God and Jesus Christ. It's not, in general speech making, that's not a big thing. In, in preaching, obviously, it's got to be there, right? Um, <laughs> you don't have to mention God in every, every sentence. But in a homily or a sermon in the Christian tradition, Jesus should come into it, right? <laughs> so that's, that's obviously, I think it would be my number one, I think. Then maybe an important thing, writing for yourself. Preachers write, they're, they're going to say it themselves, right? You're not writing for someone else to speak. So I think that makes a difference. I, I, the little bit of experience I had um, in speech writing, it went off to a government minister, it was in Ireland, and it came back, a civil servant said, of this particular sentence, the minister would never say that, right? So that was a frame, a, a, just a form of words the minister said, well, I, I wouldn't say that, kind of, I wouldn't say it like that, you know, so it had to be written. So you don't, if you're preaching, you know what you'd say. There's a thing about feedback, uh, you don't get an awful lot of feedback when you're preaching, in, well, not, in, not in my church, or in most Catholic churches, you know, you stand outside and you shake people's hands as they leave, and maybe two people will say something about the homily if it was good, or if, if it really struck a chord. That's about as good as it gets, sometimes nothing at all. So you don't really hear very much. Um, there was one time, this was in, I just arrived in Edinburgh. Edinburgh people don't gush, as you might have picked up. Right? <laughs> and in the corridor, after mass, I was in the corridor of the church, and a guy who had missed the collection and had his little envelope, little pink envelope that puts, puts his collection money in, he'd missed the plate. And so he said, oh, Father, I missed the collection, can I give you this? No, you know. So I took it and he said, he just said, you were worth it, by the way. <laughs> he didn't smile. It wasn't a pally-friendly thing. It was just a comment. You were worth it, by the way. And that was it. It was, it was just a comment. And I thought, is that affirmation? I think that's affirmation. 
Um, and the other thing about homilies is that people, people hear what they most want to hear, right? They, sometimes they just retain one line of the, of the homily, one sentence that speaks to them that wasn't necessarily central to the homily at all, but that was, that was what they heard, you know? And sometimes they, they're talking about it and they say, yes, I thought you had made a good point there, Father, and it was just one little thing. I thought, well, the homily was about this, and you, you just picked up that one line. So that's, people just hear what they're, what they're listening for, I think. And there's the issue of authority. Uh, I think as a preacher, you have a, you have a certain official authority as a, a sort of an ordained minister of the church. That you're, you're entitled to get up there and speak, and you know, they're supposed to listen kind of thing, and you're supposed to know what you're talking about. So there's a sense in which you have an official authority. Connected to that, um, but that, there's also a kind of authority that you, you might or might not earn over time if you know the people and they start to think, well, this guy talks sense or this guy doesn't talk sense. Or, you know, there's a, there's a, an earned authority and there's a kind of an automatic component of it. Um, Part of the thing about having the official authority is that you're not supposed to misuse that, so that you're, you're supposed to preach the gospel and not your own opinions or your own agenda and that kind of stuff. So that's, a, that's a, again, a, a fine line you have to tread. Um, and then this thing, preaching to the choir, that expression about preaching, preaching to people who are already converted, already don't need persuading. Um, not exactly what that means, but uh, if you're preaching, most preachers are preaching to the more or less the same congregation every week for years and years and years and years. And you run out of things to say, you know, and they've heard it all before, and you can't, you know. They've heard everything you've got to say about the Good Samaritan, and there's nothing else. That's, so running out of ideas over that time, people getting bored, that's, that's a quite an issue, I think, with, with, with preaching. Anyone, are those now, am I right in thinking they're in special to preaching, or is it? Uh, no, I, I'm, I'm sorry, I, I think you're wrong. Okay. Because, uh, speak, well, the last three, um, the first two, yes, but feedback, for yeah. So right. often, okay. um, the guy I write for, throughout my whole career, whoever it is, person X, goes out, gives a speech, the only feedback I get is normally nothing at all, and that's sort of no news is good news. Mm. Um, I hear if it, it, was, if it went down like a balloon, but normally I don't get anything. And then recently, Twitter, you can get some feedback, but um, well, I, I work at NATO, and most of the feedback is from Russian trolls. <laughs> and after a while, it's just not a nice place to be. So, um, authority, the speaker has authority. Right. On yeah, who it is. Right enough. Um, particularly for, for a senior politician. <laughs> preaching to the choir, can't do that so often. Right. We go and talk to people who agree with us already. Uh, uh. Um, and and it, it's a real joy often to have the rare exception where you, you, you're going to actually change people's minds in, in, right. in an audience. Right, right. And normally it's talking, it's like a security, a security expert talking, talking to security experts right, right. Um, who think that NATO is a good thing. Oh, 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 okay. I, I think actually there's a lot more similarity. So if I do it again, I'll take those three off and have a shorter list. <laughs> Anybody else want to say about you? Jesus Christ! <laughs> <laughs> but you usually cut it out of the final draft. Yeah. yeah. And if you're an American speechwriter, God comes into it much, much more. Okay. Not not in the European, but necessarily like mm. the British context. Mm. But, um, mm. It also comes in, I think, in terms of the biblical tradition, I mean, which is which is very rich, rich in the English language. So certainly not God and Jesus Christ per se, but when you think about the tradition of literature. It's all very much informed by the tradition, so it doesn't make its way directly, but I think it's, uh, it informs us as, as English writers. 
You were going to say So there's no Years and years ago, there was a Jesuit called Patrick Pennell, a Jesuit priest, you know, and he came and he was, um, and uh, he was t giving a talk on something, you know, and he was a perfectly okay talk, but somebody in the, in the audience objected. I, I, I feel that I, I'm being preached to here. I think you're preaching to us. You know? And he said, oh, I, I'd be the last person, he said, to, to, to preach. I thought, what do you mean you're the last person to preach? You're a priest. You're supposed to preach. <laughs> so it's, yeah, so... We, I mean, that was great. Should we move on? Because I'm actually realising I've got too much stuff here. What I wanted to ask was, the first, the first question was, uh, what are the good bits of advice you've been, been given about speech writing? The ones that you'd pass on to others? Because I want to talk about some of the things that I've been told about preaching and see if they're the same. Anyone got any? What was the great thing that you were told that you've never forgotten about, about preaching? About, about speech writing? <laughs> <laughs> well, it's, it's not something I've heard before and seen before in different contexts. It's something Yeah, 
And I was going to say Bill Clinton's rule of thumb today for his speeches is he plans and writes eight, for 85% of the time allotted and leaves the 15% either so he doesn't go over or to interact to be able to feed off the audience. I should hold that representation. Logo speaking for some papers. Oh, I tell me. Anything else? There must be more. Yes. off some gems, but I want to talk about, just to compare that with some of the things that I've been told that I think were very helpful um, in, in, in preaching. Uh, a simple message, and, and it was on, in the workshop I did that she summed up in a single sentence. He told me, uh, the, Alan McGuckian again, he was saying, you know, if, if you do a, if you're making a Hollywood movie that's, what, one or two hours long, it has to be summed, if, you, if you're pitching a, a movie to a, a producer, you have to sum it up in what's called a premise, or I think the log line. And it's one or two sentences, and that's all you're given to sum up a one or two hour movie, right? So if, if you have to do that for a one and a half hour movie, a homily that's seven or 10 minutes, you ought to be able to sum it up in a single sentence. So the, what you really want to say should be one sentence. Um, and if, it's, if you can't, it's too complicated. Um, so that's the sort of getting, getting your message down to that. Um, and maybe that comes into speech writing a bit as well. <laughs> um, and then stuff which I think we, we touched on um, actually a bit yesterday in Eric's workshop too, the sort of the beginning and the middle and the end stuff, the opening words and the, um, and the ending words. Um, Alan used to say, the first words out of your mouth should grab them firmly by the throat. <laughs> <laughs> 
and he would say, you better listen up, because I've got something to fucking say here, you know? <laughs> and it was, it was really, that was, that's the, that's the, way, the impression they should get, right? And then the, the, the words that you'd finish with, um, um, I know that there are, there are certain preachers who have an inability to land, you know? They just, they, they, they haven't thought how they're going to finish, and they just keep touching the runway and bouncing off again, and, and it just goes on and on. They don't know how to wind up, you know? That's, you've got to, you really have to decide how you're going to end before you start, I think. Um, and maybe it'll be good. Can I give out this little sheet? Um, they give us this in the workshop that I did. This is It's just one sheet. This is number two. We have a second one. Oh, that's my, that's my picture. <laughs> 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 so we have got a sheet, you know, So we have at the top, you know, you need to work out what we want to say. So this is the one sentence we're talking about. So when you decide it, and you've done your thinking, and the, the first, the other sheet I'm going to go give out is about the thinking a bit more. Um, so this is the second sheet you'd use if you're going to do it the full, thorough way. You work out what your one sentence is at the top. And then uh, you work out, this is your opening's going to be here, and your ending's going to be here, and then in between the points you want to make. And stories and illustrations, and maybe you sort of make them skip. But all the time, the tool you're asking, the editing tool is, do these things serve this message? Right? Do they actually help to make them, to get the message across a bit more? You know? So you've got this story you love to, love to tell about you know, when you were in India in 1911. But it doesn't make a point. Don't use it. it? And, uh, a lot of people, a lot of fondness I've been using stories that don't actually make a point. <laughs> um, so that's the tool. Does it does these actually serve the purpose of the whole? Maybe not irrelevant to speech writing either, eh? Um, um, so then there was a, a phrase in Gaelic which uh, Sir Paul Grice used uh, yesterday. Um, Aber ach begen is aber gumae, which means uh, say, say little and say it well in, in Gaelic. Um, so he thought it was good. I think it's good for homilies too, right? Saying little and saying it well. There's, there's, uh, Winston Churchill put that in a different, different way. There was a famous occasion he's supposed to have arrived to give a speech in some venue one evening, and he said, I'm afraid I will have to give you a long speech tonight, as I haven't had time to prepare a short one. And uh, he apparently used to spend an hour on every minute that he spoke when he was writing speeches, they say. So, um, so that thing about the um, saying a little, saying it well. And then now, when I was just ordained and I was in the parish, it was in Southall in West London. Um, and quite a lot of people in that parish, English would not have been their first language. And I'd just arrived and the parish priest was a good friend of mine and he's, he's, a friend, he's in this community now, Jim Crampsey. I said, any advice about preaching here, Jim? And he just said to me, don't be too highfalutin. That was what he said, don't be too highfalutin. Is that on there? It is. So high velocity meaning too high a level or kind of a bit too, you know, high altitude kind of intellectual or whatever. Um, so that's, that's important as well, to not, not to be too high voluting. But also to respect the intelligence of your congregation. That's important too. I, mean, I was talking to a, a priest in, um, it was in Ilkley, he's in my, my, my parents are from, a County Mayo man. 
and a real intellectual. He'd done his doctorate in the image of God in Koheleth. And he was, he was a real learned man. And I went going for, going for a pint with him in the local pub and talking about preaching, you know. And I was saying about not being too high foolish. And he said, yeah, but he says, you know, you can, you've got to respect the intelligence of your congregation. He says, people, people can cope with being introduced to one new concept or a word they haven't heard before, they can cope with that, you know? So don't, don't treat them as fools, you know? And if, if, like you're talking about changing people's minds, maybe there's a new concept you've got to introduce. And they, people can cope with that, you explain it well. Um, and that, again, that's, those two things, there's a balance there, isn't there, between not being too highfalutin and not talking down to people or not being condescending. Yeah. And somebody once told me this, this was interesting, you can't preach well to people you don't like. If you go somewhere and you think, oh, these, these, these you know, you're, so, for a priest, you know, you come to some wealthy suburb and you think, oh, these are all these sort of posh, privileged people, what do they know, no, 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 la-di-da stuff. You know, if, you, if, if you go in thinking that, you can't preach well to people. Um, so it's, it's not liking the people makes a, a difference, I think. Um, and a really important thing, it's supposed to be good news. It's supposed to be good news. It has to be good news. So you've got to have a message that's positive and encouraging that is, that is good news. I mean, you can, be, I think you can be blunt about how bad things are. I suppose there's a crisis or something. Like you can be blunt about that uh, as long as you can offer hope for a way forward. So you can kind of take them down into the depths as long as you've got a way of bringing them up again. You know? and in fact, some of the most effective homilies are when you do that, when you, you're really, really blunt about how bad things are and people go, yeah, 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 yeah. And then, but you find a way of offering hope or a way forward. That, that can be actually a very effective kind of death and resurrection dynamic, which is actually, um, I think, quite powerful. Um, Next question for you. Here we are. In your experience, what makes a good speech good and what makes a bad speech bad? Any thoughts about that? Things you've heard? Let's do good first. What makes a good speech good? Well, first refer to the idea of good news, which is also applied to, applies to, to the speech writing. I remember the phrase by Barack Obama after one of shootings in New Orleans where and good news is that I'm convinced. So such a phrase, that I'm convinced that we will surpass this crisis and so on and so on. So there's good news involved, but uh, given the fact that there was no actual, actually, no, no, no actual good news. So the good news was that he was convinced that <laughs> his conviction that well, we will do it. Right. So, so obviously he paid attention to it. About good and bad speeches, I don't um, agree with some of them in the sense that a lot of time, often speeches are too, is there such a thing as low food? Yeah. <laughs> People just sticking to, you know, whatever it is that's on the agenda and not talking about the higher principles or why does it matter and it doesn't matter or actually. That's never interesting unless you're into a very technical audience. Okay, so these two, the good news. These, two are, these two are actually held in balance, and that's not good, but also respect intensity. From my side, we often err on the, on the lower uh, of those uh, two comments, and then we refuse to be high pollutant. And the good speeches, even if you look at the Obamas and so on, they're very high in principle. And we do, I think people also like that. They like to have someone who does, who yeah. says something that they wouldn't have said themselves. Is a bit preachy without being um, And second, about the good news, yes, but I think a lot of speeches are bad because they refuse to look at criticism in the eye. And very often, from, from my 
my side and we, uh, we talk about you know, all the good stuff that we're doing and refuse to, I myself very much like to just name the criticism, spell it out and say I don't agree for that reason, even admit that they do have a point but I see it differently and that's something that a lot of politicians don't, don't really like to do. So it can't be good news by glossing over it. Especially in social speeches, uh, talking about yourself too much. I once went to a funeral where the deceased boss spoke, and he ended up fully explaining the whole HR strategy. <laughs> <laughs> and mentioning the deceased's uh, salary, what he used to earn. In all the funeral, mentioning what he had earned, yeah. So, yeah. Oh, that's a bad can I concentrate on good first? A good speech, I think, um, uh, not just a speech, but any, any sort of communication should be focused on changing the way someone uh, thinks, feels, or acts. You should have a, a clear objective. And, and so a good speech, however it's written, you know, whatever the style, whatever it should, uh, if not achieve that, certainly go some way to achieve. And if it hasn't, then what's the point of this movie? It starts with the audience in mind. So, so in other words, and then everything flows from that. That is the language clear to this audience. doesn't matter if it's clear to you. Is it going to move this audience? Do they care about this topic? I think a lot of speakers don't think about the audience so much. Speech writers do, certainly. Um, but some speakers go charging in with, this is what I want to say, right? As opposed to, Yeah, yeah, not what you're expecting. Yeah. You just take what you're expecting. Yeah. Yeah. 
Can you tell from the picture what that is? From the yes. yes. <laughs> I'm not going to show it for two reasons. One, actually, Eric showed it. Showed a slightly shorter clip than I'm going to show you. Um, and uh, we're running out of time. And I think most of you know it very well, don't you? <laughs> so I hope you'll forgive me if I move on to the next one. Um, on this, my list of things, I've heard a lot of things that I think that make, speech, that make homilies good. And the, some, of the, some of the things you'd say, sort of tight and no wasted words and no waffle. Well-structured and geared to the conclusion, which is what that sheet is about. Um, this is a thing. The preacher has got something to say, something that he or she wants to tell you. That's, that's very important. So often that's not the case. So Right. Yeah, nothing to say. Nothing to say. Yeah. Um, and then things maybe not very surprising, persuasive, and then sort of changing people's minds. That, that was maybe part of what, what you said, Marinish. Um, enlightening, I think it should, people should feel, oh yeah, they should feel enlightened by it. Oh yeah, I didn't have thought of that. I would use the word liberating, um, you know, from people, from, from ignorance or misconceptions or unnecessary burdens. A homily should, should free people up, um, should set people free. And then, I mean, we're thinking of that, I have a dream speech, inspiring, motivating, so actually leads to action, as, as was said, leads to action, makes a difference afterwards. And then encouraging in the sense of, you know, there is, we can do this, there is a way forward. Um, this isn't beyond our reach. It, it sort of makes, say, in the, in, the, in the Christian context of kind of things, that this holiness, that you, you, can, you can reach this. It's not, this is not impossible, what, we, what we're asking you to do. There's a great line I love from the book of Deuteronomy. I'm going to just put it on the screen for you. Um, Deuteronomy chapter 30. For this law I enjoin on you today is not beyond your strength or beyond your reach. It's not in heaven that you need to wonder who will go up to heaven for us and bring it down to us so that we may hear and keep it. Nor is it beyond the seas that you need to wonder who will cross the seas for us and bring it back to us so that we may hear and keep it. No. The word is very near to you. It's in your mouth and in your heart for your observance. I think that's a beautiful, a beautiful quote from Deuteronomy. I use that a lot. Um, this, is, this, this is within your reach. It's not, this is not way above you. Um, more that I think is important with a homily a takeaway, something that people can take away with them and use in their lives later on you know, that something, oh yeah, that, that'll be useful um, a helpful thought or a helpful insight holding your attention um, entertaining it's, I mean, if a homily is good if it's entertaining it's not maybe the prime purpose but, and not necessarily jokes but observations that make you Smile. Richard Fraser is the minister at Greyfriars Kirk here, and he was opening the Greyfriars Community Project, as a, a beautiful new building um, in the grass market. And he said, I uh, hope you, you, you've had a chance to see the building. I hope you've had a chance to admire the building, especially the toilets. He said, uh, I think you, you can judge a building by its toilets. <laughs> and people smiled and laughed. And it was, it was a good observation. It was, it, was, it was entertaining. It was a good observation. Um, he's a very good preacher, actually, is, uh, is Richard. Um, and this thing about kind of... Um, Pointing out a truth you recognise. If you could put your finger on something that people hadn't really thought about, they'd go, oh, yeah, oh, that's right, yeah, yeah. And sometimes you can see it in the, you, the people's places in the congregation. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Which is a great, when you get that, it's really good. <laughs> oh, yeah. um, and um, that kind of tell it like it is quality, the unvarnished truth, when, 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 when somebody's actually speaking the truth, and you're, yes, that's, that is true, that's right. Um, and offering some kind of vision, offering a kind of compelling, attractive vision of, what this is all about, those, those things I, in homilies that I like, I've, I've seen that. So a lot of that was, was already said. Are there any comments on those, those aspects of what a good homily? Yeah. I have a comment about that. You have to say something. 
Especially actually on Catholics. Um, I think Catholics are one of the weakest denominations that belong to people. You know, you get the Catholics people because of that. They communion and they walk straight out from communion at the door and go out without being waiting for the end of the, the mass. Do you know what communion means? <laughs> <laughs> um, so, so that's so, so, especially in kind of, especially in older kind of Catholic kind of things. That, that's probably the reason. Am I allowed to move on? Because I'm. It's actually quarter past three now. Sorry. Um, let me tell you about bad things that I would come up with, right? <laughs> too long. In, in, in the church, too long is the number one complaint. Too long, right? Um, and then, as we said before, he doesn't have anything to say. It's usually he. He doesn't have anything to say. And the third thing is, it's not about the gospel, it's not about the text. So you, the priest reads the gospel and he thinks he's supposed to preach about what he's just read, not preach about what he saw in the supermarket yesterday. You know, it's supposed to be about the gospel, it's supposed to be about the text. So the, the, my, my big complaint is it's too long, doesn't, he doesn't have anything to say, or it's not <coughs> about the gospel. So that's the end. Um, before we take, I'll just play you one little clip. Um, can I? Can I? This? Actually, I think you need to click on it. Can you click on it on the next this is an example of that. Twenty-ninth verse of the fourteenth chapter of the book of Genesis. But my brother Esau is an hairy man, but I am a smooth man. <laughs> but my brother Esau is an hairy man, but I, but I am a smooth man. <laughs> Perhaps I can paraphrase that, say the same thing, but in a different way, by quoting you some words from that grand Old Testament prophet Ezra. Ezra 4, 16. He said unto me, What seest thou? And I said, Lo, 
I see the children of Bebai numbering 673, and I see the children of Esgerd numbering 1,474. I see the children of Bebai numbering 673, and I see the children of Esgerd numbering 1,474. There come times in the lives of each and every one of us, when we turn aside from our fellows and seek the solitude, the tranquility of our own fireside. We put up our feet, don't we? And we, we put on our slippers, we sit and stare into the fire. And I wonder, at such times, whether your thoughts turn, as mine do, to those words I've just read you now. <laughs> They're very unique words, they're very special words, because these are words that express, as very few words do, that sense of lack which lies at the very heart of modern existence. That, that, I don't quite know what it is, but I'm not getting everything out of life that I should be getting, sort of feeling. <laughs> because there are more than this, you know, these words, there are much, much, much more. Because they are, in a very real sense, a challenge to each and every one of us here tonight. <laughs> what is that challenge? <laughs> One evening, I was strolling through Piccadilly Circus <laughs> when my eye was caught by a rather personable young lady who was sitting there on a bench. And as I walked by, she called out to me and she said, Hey, Padre. Have you got the time? <laughs> I had the time, and I stopped and told it to her, and she seemed most anxious to chat, so I sat down beside her on the bench. In the course of conversation, I laid my hand upon her knee, and suddenly she said, Hey, Padre, what's the little game? Hey, Padre. <laughs> What's the little girl? <laughs> I was very grateful to that young lady because, you see, she put me in mind of the kind of question I felt I ought to be asking you here tonight. What's the little game? <laughs> what is this whole vivid, exciting little game that we call life about? Very many years ago, when I, was, when I was about as old as some of you are now, I went mountain climbing in Scotland with a very dear friend of mine. It was this mountain, you see, we decided to climb it. So, very early one morning, we arose and we began to climb. All day we climbed. Up and up. Up, higher and higher and higher, till the valley lay very small below us. The mist of the evening began to come down, the sun to set. When we reached the summit, we, we sat down to watch this tremendous sight of the sun going down behind the mountains. And as we watched, my friend, very suddenly, 
and violently vomiting. <laughs> Some of us think life's a bit like that. <laughs> it isn't, you know. Life! Life! Well, it's... It's rather like opening a tin of sardines. <laughs> We're all of us looking for the key. <laughs> some, of us, some of us think we found the key, don't we? Oh, we think we found the key. We roll back the lid of the sardine tin of life. We reveal the sardines, the, the riches of life they're in. We get them out, we enjoy them. Do you know? There's always a little bit in the corner that you can't get out. <laughs> I wonder, is there a little bit in the corner of your life? <laughs> I know there is in mine. <laughs> so now, I draw to a close. We prepare to go out into the world. I want you, in times of trouble and sorrow and hopelessness and despair, Amid the hurly-burly of modern life. <laughs> if ever you're tempted to say, Oh, stuff this for a lark. <laughs> I want you then to remember, for comfort, the words of my first text to you tonight. But my brother, Ezo, is an hairy man. But I am a smooth man. <laughs>so that um, that uh, I think it was uh, that's an example of a bad one I think um, and uh, when you, <laughs> one of the things about this is God was not mentioned Jesus was not mentioned in the whole thing didn't come in um, didn't have anything to do with the text and all those kind of stuff so that it kind of epitomizes all the things that you get um, other things sometimes gloomy lack of encouragement de-energizing I know one guy who used to preach in our church and he had this, this it was just his, this, the cadence of his voice he had this kind of Dying cadence where you go, and it was, it was dying all the time, and it, you felt completely de energized for the listening to the, to the homily. Um, Unconvinced, sometimes people you know, make arguments, they're, just, they're not convincing, they don't really work. Um, then there are two charlatans, I thought there are two times, two different kinds of charlatan homilies, right? There's a time when you think this is all talk, this, uh, for instance, I mean, uh, if someone's preaching about how you've got to look after the poor and you've seen the same guy 10 minutes before mass telling a beggar to piss off outside the church, you kind of think, yeah, this, this is not right. So it's not, it's, if it's all talk, and sometimes you get a sense of that, you can't always tell just from the homie itself whether that's true or not, but there is that. The second kind of charlatan is kind of emotional manipulation when they're actually, they're, they're trying to manipulate you with what they're saying and, and take you somewhere that isn't quite. Um, and I was gonna give you an example of that, but it's too long, so I'm gonna miss out the example. Um, Sometimes too intellectual or theoretical. Oops, sorry, let me do that again. Um, although I take the point that um, you do want to raise people's minds a bit, um, but sometimes it's just above people's heads. Um, Self-referential, as was mentioned already. Um, talking about yourself and not about the, the point. Um, Self-indulgent, where people talk about their own interests rather than the congregation, not thinking about the congregation, the people they're speaking to and what they're interested in. Um, 
There was one, I remember a, a Spanish priest talking about this. Um, some preachers you say, they say that their best message is, God loves me. Gospel messages, God loves you. Somebody just say, God loves me, if you want God to love you, you've got to be happy. Um, and then lecturing or berating or telling people off, which you get sometimes. Um, I was at one, which I don't think I know whether I heard that. Patronizing or condescending or insulting the intelligence of the congregation. So that's, again, that's the other side to, um, to too high a level. Uh, corny or cliche. There are a few cliches in that, in that Alan Bennett. It was Alan Bennett, by the way, who was giving that homily uh, that you heard this when you heard. Well, sometimes there is content, but it's not good. They have got something to say, but it's poor. It's not, they haven't got a good grasp of theology, or they lack a basic understanding of the scripture they're talking about, or those kind of things. Those happen as well. Um, I'd invite comments about one. Is it, is it better to just get to the end? Is it? Yeah, let's do that. Um, so the, my big question is, what are you trying to do when you write a speech? What am I trying to do when I write a homily? Um, is it, yeah, I'll ask you that. What do you think? What am I trying to do? Quite a bit already in some things, so there's a little bit of so <coughs> change people's actions, change people's minds, persuade, inspire people up, inspire, try to establish some community or a bond between the yeah. community, and community, about the same way. Tell me the story that they really Yeah. So those are some things, and then, so what I came down to my, my list was good news, giving them good news, encourage people, challenge them as well. They should be challenged there as well, um, not just making them feel good. Um, Eric said yesterday in his workshop, we're in the business of persuasion. Um, and I put a question mark next to that. Oops, put a question mark next to that because, I mean, I think it's part of what you do, but it's not, it's not number one on my list of things I'm persuading. I suppose I am persuading. Um, there's an element of that. And then these things, educate, inform, entertain, those, those words you might recognize come from the BBC's mission statement, educate to inform and entertain. So they're good things to do. And I'm happy if they happen in a homily, but then, again, they're not my, my main purpose is not to educate or to inform or to educate. It's good that they're there, but it's not the main, it's not, for instance, a homily shouldn't be a scripture study session, you know? Uh, it shouldn't be about exegesis. I mean, that should be in there, but that isn't the main point. And it shouldn't be a catechism class, that this is what the church teaches. It should, that's not the main point. Um, I think the main point is connecting faith and life, connecting the scriptures you've just heard with the lives of the people there. Um, there's just one thing I want to show you this now, because I'm going to get another little handout. Do, 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 do. We talked about the text, you talked about the text, right? And preaching on the text. Um, there is uh, uh, the text, especially in, in, in Mass, is the gospel, but all the readings. But sometimes if the occasion is maybe a first communion or a baptism or a funeral or a wedding, the, the text, that is part of the text, the context, what's going on is part of the text. Or some event in the world has happened, that could be called part of the text. So you're supposed to preach on the text. But then there's a kind of a triangle. The text, the preacher and the community. So um, one theory of this is that you're supposed to, the, the homily should involve all those three things, the text, the preacher, and the community, the people are being spoken to, and they should connect, make the connections. And if, if, it, if it doesn't mention the text or the, the preacher just says nothing about himself or doesn't involve him or herself in what he's doing, or the community, like it, doesn't, it could have been given to anybody they're not thinking about who's, who they're speaking to, that's, there's something missing. So those three need to be in there in that triangle. Um, um, so I want to hand up on a sheet. Well, so, so, so. There we go. That's the sheet that we use first. Before the one I gave you first, we just take one.
and it has that triangle, community, preacher, and text. And so you'd write down in each box what things in the community or the preacher or the text you wanted to, you wanted to, to bring out and connect through. So this is the first sheet you use, and you get those, you jot those things, scribble those things down. So the community, like we say, starting with saying and starting with the people, starting with their names, their minds, starting with them and their designs and their thoughts. So that's the very top of the page. What are the lives of my audience are looking for? Picture what elements of myself and my faith and my experience going to bring. So, without being overly self referential, it should be, this should be a moment that I would be in somebody else would be in somebody else. What about me? What, what can I do to it? And what in the text? So, that's another sheet. And then, what points do you want to make and how can I make them convincible? So, that's, that's a kind of a jotting, jotting sheet that you can use. Um, one little thought, a theological thought that in Catholic Mass, there's liturgy of the Word and then there's liturgy of the Eucharist. There's two halves to it. And the liturgy of the Eucharist, you take the gifts of bread and wine, they're offered, they're consecrated, then they're broken and shared. In the liturgy of the Word, you have the readings are read, and then the homily is preached. So you can see the homily as a kind of a, the end of the same process, as a breaking and sharing of the Word. Somebody told me that, that was quite a nice way of thinking about it. That's what you're supposed to be doing, breaking and sharing the Word. Um, maybe our title of this conference, you know, how can we craft a vision for the future? Offering vision is what you're trying to do when you preach, and it's what you're trying to do when you... Uh, when you, you're speech making. Finally, last thing I want to talk about, my thing, which is the title, the title of the talk, is from the Gospel of Luke, the story of the road to Emmaus after the resurrection. Jesus, uh, two of his disciples are walking on the road to Emmaus and Jesus appears beside them, but they don't recognize who he is. Um, and he starts talking to them about the, the scriptures and the prophets. And later on, he breaks bread with them and they recognize him and then he disappears. And they say to themselves, did not our hearts burn within us as he talked to us on the road and explained the scriptures to us? That sense of making your heart burn within you, uh, that says a lot about what I'm trying to do when I preach, because that phrase, did, did not our hearts burn within us, is, is, is um, a very powerful one. Um, but also because in the story it motivates people to action. They immediately get up and they go to Jerusalem and they do something. So it motivates people's behavior and changes their behavior immediately. I don't think I get people's hearts burning within them very often, and you probably can't expect to do it every week. But there have been times I think I've got quite close, and it's perhaps subconsciously what I'm aiming for. Perhaps, I don't know, perhaps at least some of the time that's what you're aiming for, too. I don't know. Any thoughts? Are you aiming for that, subconsciously even? Sorry, that's me. <laughs>